flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Welcome back, Flatlanders. Things are going quite swimmingly over here at the Pratt office, and um, I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay. And I'm Tana. And today we're joined with a very special guest from the Pratt Hatchery, Brett Howdeshell, who is the hatchery manager. Welcome, Brett. We're so glad to have you with us. I appreciate the invitation. As Lindsay said, Brett is the hatchery manager here at the Pratt Hatchery. He knows all things aquaculture and um, hatchery here at the local Pratt Hatchery and beyond. So, Brett, we're very excited to talk to you today about how the Pratt Hatchery is run, kind of the history of the Pratt Hatchery and the role that it plays in overall fisheries um, management and kind of how you all plug in there. So um, we'll also get into some exciting information about how folks can come and tour the hatchery and learn more from you directly and uh, give it a visit. So before we dive into all of that, would you mind telling our listeners a little more about you and your background? Well, let's see. I, I be, started my career with the agency in 1989, but before that, I grew up in Salina, Kansas. Uh, in, I attended Kansas State University. When I was in high school, I started getting an interest in this field. More, I was more outdoors, um, did a lot of activities that way, and uh, I was introduced to an employee of the agency. Um, he was a conservation officer in the Salon area. And I, my interest in it grew, and it's kind of when I decided I wanted to get into this. And I started out, I wanted to get into the wildlife or the law enforcement end, but that just didn't quite fit in. The bulk of the uh, turnover in the agency was in the fisheries division. So I kind of changed direction a little bit and trying to improve my odds of getting in. So... And anyway. the rest is history. Yeah, huh? and yeah. now you're here. Yeah. And you are amongst two fellow wildcats, so Emo. All right. It's <laughs> a good place to start. Um, so was that a big family component for you all as adventuring in the outdoors and being involved hunting, fishing, hiking, camping? We used to do a lot of camping mm-hmm. as a family. Uh, I grew up in, you know, I was, I was active in Boy Scouts, and so I did a lot of camping with them and different outdoor activities with that. Well, that's fun. How so, far did you make it up in the Boy Scouts? I, I got my eagle. Really? Yeah. Nice. That's very so, impressive. It took a while. What was your Eagle Scout project? Do you mind me asking? I, in our church, I rebuilt the pulpit. It <gasps> wow. was termite damaged, and we tore it out and rebuilt it. Huh. And it was something they we had to do within a week's time. So oh my it was gosh. pretty quick to do. No they kidding. They wanted it done starting Sunday afternoon and ended up on Saturday night. So. Wow. Huh. Down Very to the wire. Cool. <laughs> wow. Okay. So can you tell us more about your role here at KDWP? I'm the, Currently, I'm the hatchery manager over here at the Pratt Hatchery. Uh, I started out in 1989 uh, as a fish culturist, which is basically the biologist or one of the biologists. There's three of us over there. In 2016, that's when my opportunity to move up to the manager came along, and that's what I've been doing since. 
Okay, so when you say fish culturist, I'm I'm a fungus person, and when I when we talk about making cultures, we're talking like you swab a desk for whatever's growing on or growing or living on there, swipe it on your petri disc, and see what grows. Right? Can you kind of explain a little bit more about fish culturing? Well, fish culture it's, it's you're taking two fish, creating more. Is it in a petri dish? No, no, choosing not a petri dish, <laughs> but. Uh, well, it can be a small, but so, anyway. So really, it's just growing the fish population, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you'll hear us um, kind of use some of these terms interchangeably. I think I already used the term aquaculture or fish culture. Aquaculture is the more kind of broad term, but fish culture specifically refers to fish. So that's probably the most appropriate term for us to use. Um, I have to ask, and I have a sneaking suspicion I know what you're going to say, but what does the average day look like for you as a hatchery manager? Is there an average day? There's not a real average day. It changes throughout the year, depending on what season we're in. Uh, probably the busiest times is the fall and the spring. Uh, that's when we're harvesting what we produce or what we started. Um, next would be the summer. Everything just kind of sits idle. We're feeding fish, um, taking care of them, monitoring for diseases, things like that. In the wintertime, we do a lot of maintenance. So we're coming out of the slow time or maintenance time mm-hmm. and we're just getting to ramp up and do the start producing some fish out there uh, and for some context we're recording this episode in early march so um for folks that are catching this episode later on that's kind of as the team over at the hatchery is starting to gear up um so i do want to take some time to talk about the hatchery specifically because one of the first things i learned when i started working here at kdwp in oh 2018 i think um, was how historic the Pratt Hatchery is. Can you talk to us a little bit about the historical significance? I'll try. I, I probably have a lot of holes in it, but I can uh, try to fill in some of it. Uh, in 1903, the, between the governor and the first state warden, uh, they allocated about $1,000 to uh, pick a location for to create a fish hatchery or build a fish hatchery. And between 1903 and 1905, they located this area. The uh, the county commissioners posed selling it to the agency or the uh, the department, and from that time, from the time they purchased it in 1905 until about 1912, they built the Lemon Park Lake, which is the diversion lake. This is our main water supply here at the hatchery, and uh, from there, it's just kind of. It's increased in size. It's changed uh, a little bit as far as the number of ponds we have out there. Uh, It started out with just a small handful of about six, and we currently have 87 ponds out there. Do you really? I had no idea. It stretches over about almost 200 acres. Wow. That's 87 ponds? Yeah, that's... I had no, we literally, Lindsay and I work here on site and had no idea that it was that expansive. I thought it was like 12. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, it's, it's, we got 87. That is incredible. So. Okay. And what blows my mind is how far away the Lemon Park Pond is from those ponds that you use mm-hmm. to fill them up every year. Right. Um, and then do you happen to know if any other hatcheries across the state utilize like the pond system? Oh, yeah. Yes, a lot of a lot of the facilities uh, use pond systems. Okay. Right now, that pond, the pipeline that you're talking about, runs about a mile and a half underground, 
And uh, it's a 21-inch clay tile pipe that was laid back in 1913. And uh, that's our current supply. The, we, the state has four total hatcheries. And uh, there's one at Farlington, one at Milford, and one out at Mead, beyond the one here at Pratt. Okay. And they all three have ponds. They do? So it's in different amounts, but uh, the Milford hatchery is more of an intensive culture hatchery. They have six ponds, and all the rest are concrete raceway. Okay, I've never seen the ponds out there. I've been to Milford hatchery several times. I've had very intensive and, like... Not like very in depth behind the scene tours of the hatchery. I've never seen the ponds. I only see the raceways. They sit back a ways off the the main pad out there. Okay, you really got to look. You got to look for a six foot fence. And now you got an excuse to go back. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely to visit all of the hatcheries. Yeah. So let's talk um, about what species the Pratt Hatchery has historically focused on. What do you typically rear here? Every year. Uh, we change our assignments or what our production goals are, and we do that by um, um, by what the field biologists request. This year, we're scheduled to do 10 different species. We've done as many as 13, but this year's 10, and that's what we do here is mainly predaceous or sport fish. We do one forage, forage species. This time of year, we'll go in, and we're filling up the ponds right now, uh, we'll go in there, and almost half those ponds are going to turn into either walleye or sawgai ponds. And we'll take those from three days post-hatch until about 30 to 45 days to raise them up. And they'll be almost two inches long by the time we get done. Okay, and the and, two inches length, that's what defines it as a fingerling? Or, yes. Okay. Yep. And that's our main production is walleye, sawgai, and our other species that we've that we keep on facility it's been here forever it seems like it's a channel catfish that's kind of been our i guess meat and potatoes type yeah and to our our local folks that have had the opportunity to visit the pratt education center which if you haven't had that chance please please come out um it's a wonderful facility extremely well run um you'll be able to see an exhibit with those milk cans that um catfish were able to spawn in in the past and kind of utilize those and see the whole system of like paddles and i'm we'll talk about terminology later don't worry but um yeah you'll be able to get kind of a sample of that up hand close and personal and see what that's been like yeah i didn't realize you did so many species outside of that um i know you all have had sunfish as well We, we do the species we normally have are channel catfish walleye sawgai we'll do hybrid striped bass We'll do fathead minnows. That's our forage or that, that species. Uh, we'll do bluegill, black crappie, grass carp. We're getting pretty close there. Yeah. Okay. okay. And I've heard. And blue catfish. Sorry. Oh, nice. Oh, oh blue. blue That's here. cool. Okay. So I've heard that um, some of the fish hatcheries in Kansas will rear a certain species to trade with another state. Yeah, yes. In exchange for a species that they are rearing. So it's like a trade-off system, right? Yes, it, we, we do a, well, in fact, that's one of my positions. I'm the fish trade coordinator for the state. Ooh. So every year, we uh, when we attend uh, a fish culture workshop, and that's usually when all the fish traders get together, we'll have our own separate meeting. We kind of go off and the species or the sizes that we cannot produce 
in the state here or at the Pratt Hatchery, uh, we oftentimes will trade for them. We do what we can do well, and that's what we use for trade stock for things we can't do. Uh, a quick example, we trade Channel Catfish Fry for Northern Pike Fry. We don't have the brood fish around, so the state of Nebraska. We, we, we make an exchange for those. Okay, and when that's you, just one of them, but there's several. Okay, and when you say brood fish, are you going out into water systems and collecting adult fish and then harvesting their sperm and eggs? Yes. Okay, that's what it would be if we were doing northern pine. Right now, that's what they're doing with walleye and and guy and some of those others. Right, because we have a brood population, right? A lot of times, like the walleye, they're already in the reservoirs. They go out there during the natural spawning time and. And they'll strip them right, net them, trap them, uh, strip them right there, and and fertilize the eggs right on the shore. And then they'll bring them into us. Some of the things we do maintain the broodfish over there at the hatchery. So it just kind of depends on the species. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And what are some of the unique challenges that come with working with either persids, the kind of perch family like the sauger and walleye, or the ictalurids with the catfish? Do either family have like really unique challenges when it comes to rearing, need specialized equipment? I think the, one of the hardest things is is monitoring the water. That's probably the, the biggest thing that we have a challenge on doing. Uh, is manipulating the water. It you really can't beat Mother Nature. If Mother Nature has a cold snap, that's just the way it works. But uh, we do our best to manipulate things, like the water temp. We can flow two different temperature waters together, if need be. Uh, we fertilize the ponds to create the food. Um, has there ever been any threat of like aquatic disease or anything with your fish oh, populations? Yes. That's a that's a constant thing we have to monitor for. That's what the individual biologists, we've broken it down to where each biologist has their own specialty or what size they produce, and they have their own goals or their quotas that they're supposed to do. It's up to them to get that done. And part of that is to go out and monitor how your fish are doing out in those ponds. And that may be getting in there and saying up a small portion of them, um, you just have to get outside and do work on them. It's something you can't really do from in the office. but Right, and some of the key hatchery folks live right here on site at the hatchery yeah. as well, right? We have two biologists that live here right now. But going out there and collecting fish, some of the things you that we do in, uh, or we learned in college and stuff like that, you're making microscope slides, things like that, looking at them, seeing what kind of little parasites are on them, things like that. Sure. So, and and we're watching their body condition. You can tell when a fish has not had enough to eat or whatever. Right. But we're monitoring that. Anything that anything that gives you a sign that they're stressed or anything like that, we try to control that. All right, and let's talk about some of that terminology. We hit on fingerling, which was good, and I made some bad attempt at paddles and, and moving water. Um, let's talk about terminology first of kind of the fish and then also move into equipment as well. So um, you said initially when you get fish at the hatchery, sometimes they'll be in egg form that are, that are already fertilized. Talk us through those life stages in that terminology. Okay. Starting out, you have a row or the eggs for the male. You have the sperm or the milt, 
Oftentimes it's called melt. That that's the basic, and then we go up from there. We do uh, uh, fertilized eggs, uh, uh, eyed eggs, and that's usually a second stage where you can actually see that fish inside. You'll start seeing its eyes and things like that moving. You'll start seeing some of the chromatophores on the skin, things like that that make you can identify the structures on the fish. From there, you have the fry. Sometimes people call them sack fry. When a fish actually hatches, oftentimes it's yolk sac. It's not fully, you know, it, it's it's present, but the organ organs underneath that, the intestines, things like that, are not fully de- developed, and that digestive tract is still forming once they've already hatched. So th- they'll be in that stage for, like on a walleye, that is about a two-and-a-half-day cycle or period of time until uh, until it's totally absorbed and the gut is formed. And uh, then we go from there. You have the fry. Uh, we go on up to a fingerling. And that's, as we mentioned with the walleye, that's about a two-inch fish. Uh, on a channel catfish, that's going to be a four- to six-inch fish. So a species, it's kind of dependent. Um, you go from fingerlings, that's usually termed as a one on a catfish, that's usually a one-year growth. Uh, you go from there to either a short or an intermediate, and that's uh, on a channel catfish. That's two years production or two years growth, and then you go up into the adult size. I can't get away from this fingerling concept. Like, why do we use the term fingerling to describe it? Is it because of the length of a finger? Like, who? Like, why? <laughs> I don't know if I can give you a good answer. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just but, like mulling things over in my brain. Yeah, I guess I, I guess you can say <laughs> lick your finger, but anyway. don't quote us on that. Well, yeah, and it's inaccurate know. because everybody's fingers are different lengths. You know, yeah. thinking about this too hard. I know. <laughs> all right. So, with that kind of terminology in mind, um, can we talk about the special equipment that you all utilize there too? Yeah, yes. Okay, and I, I have to admit, so um, kind of my intro into aquaculture came from my father and um he has always been like a a hobby fish culturist um he was big into um keeping fish and he would raise fish and sell them for a short time actually when he was in college at k-state for a little extra beer money okay (laughs) um so anyway my intro to that was with gold severums and he would make homemade egg tumblers and we would be able to watch them through that process feed them little bits of egg yolk i would almost always feed them too much um love them too much and then ph would spike in the tank or um it wouldn't end well but anyway that is my very limited scope of um what fish culture looks like so talk us through the equipment what do you use why is it so important i have also heard that turkey feathers may come in handy for walleye we, we have some yep yeah so let's talk about um, that okay most we when we're dealing with the eggs we're either going to put them through a jar rolling system, which is called a McDonald's jar. We put them through a paddle wheel system, which is what we'd use on the channel catfish. And then we sometimes will we'll build rock beds or things like that, structures out on the ponds, and just let the fish naturally um, spawn and rear their own fish or their own young. Uh, as far as the uh, rolling jars, we have that's what we use on most species. It's it's just a yeah. It's just a plexiglass type of a jar with a round bottom. Water is injected slowly through it. It hits that round bottom and just slowly rolls the eggs. 
And what you're trying to do is by doing that is to keep them oxygenated. And uh, so that way you, you increase your, your hatch rates. Right. And, and, and is it the, um, the non-viable eggs kind of float to the surface? You'll see them separate. On a wall, it's very obvious. They'll, there'll be a, a green layer mm-hmm. or where the eggs are good. And that green coloration is actually from the skin of the fish. But the, uh, the white band at the top or yellowish band, that's usually dead eggs. Mm. And there's always, a, you know, almost always a uh, band of those on there. It's not 100% kind of a deal. Can't get them all. No. Right. And that's something that the biologists kind of take into account, and they'll estimate the number of viable eggs versus those that um, are no longer viable, and that's something that you all plan for in your calculations. Right. When Okay, go, looking at a walleye. We'll bring those in. They'll, they'll be spawned at the lake or at the reservoir. This year they're doing it up at uh, Hillsdale, Kerwin, and over at El Dorado. They'll go out there, and daily they bring them down to us. We'll let them sit in the jar. Uh, we put them in there, and we get a measurement on how many mils are in that jar. And what the fish egg will do in that first 24 to 48 hours is water harden. It will, it will take on water and kind of solidify and uh, during that time, they're very delicate, so we don't really mess with them too much. Once they've water-hardened, you can measure them. You get a good count on how many eggs are in that jar. Then you let them sit there and slowly cycle for almost eight days and, uh, and roll in those jars until uh, on that eighth day you go in there. And you'll see a few of them starting to come off and hatch out, but then you take and shut the water off for a few minutes, let them settle. You take a measurement on where that green or that live egg line is and then we calculate what the hatch rate is well, i mean we're going to have in that tank when it's all said and done and we go with that number that makes it yeah it does and to any of you <laughs> aspiring biologists out there pay attention in your math class it's going to keep coming in handy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wish y'all could have just seen brett's face <laughs> never <So>. my subject <laughs> Mine either. Oh, my gosh. Um, And while we're talking about walleye, I kind of teased the whole turkey feather thing. Um, I've been so fortunate to get to go and observe a couple walleye spawns. So um, talk to us a little bit about what that turkey feather is used for. We we use turkey feathers and goose feathers. Oftentimes, uh, in the field, when they're spawning these things, uh, when they're actually, they mix the, they'll strip the eggs into a, basically a bowl. And then they either use preserved milt or they'll directly uh, extract the milt from the males over those eggs. And they use that feather. As I mentioned, it they're very delicate. And then you sit there and you, they use the feather to stir that with. And then they'll put a clay solution over it so that that will keep the eggs from sticking. And all the time they're using that feather to do that. When we load out fish in the fish house, we're netting those. And we'll use uh, feathers likewise, I mean, in a very much the same way. We're sitting there keeping them off of, if, there's, if they, we net them into a bucket and they're stuck to the bucket, you're sitting there constantly moving them out and getting them back down in the water and everything. So right. we use them for several things. Ah, I love it. And um, to our listeners, when Brett is talking about stripping the eggs from the female, he's basically talking about um, gently but manually extracting those eggs from the stomach. The fish is still alive when this happens and basically kind of putting gentle pressure with your thumbs on the belly, would you say, and gently extracting those. Some fish are so big you have to use your whole hand. Wow. Tuck them under uh, your arm like a football. It's, and- yeah, it's you get into... You get into some of these fish like stripers and things. Mm-hmm. They're huge. 
and uh, you really got to really work on them. But it, it is, it's, it's, it's not to be abusive to the fish. That's the whole purpose of doing this is to work them out, work the eggs out of the fish and be able to return that fish back to the water for, Absolutely. To, to keep going. And then the milt, um, just as a reminder that Brett mentioned, is the sperm from the male fish that he said is either um, ejected directly onto the eggs once they've been stripped or um, sometimes is kept in some kind of container and then added later on in the process. Right. We, we take and we'll, like on sulgur, when we collect sulgur milt to make a sulgai, because that's a hybrid, that's a walleye egg and a sulgur male, we'll take the sulgur melt and we'll extract that up to almost two weeks prior because they normally spawn at an earlier time so we have to put it in a a, uh, milt extender and it's a combination of several chemicals and sugars and things like that and then we'll take those vials and we put that over the eggs and you have a narrow window on when you can fertilize an egg and sometimes it's as few as 20 seconds whoa so you got to really kind of work fast but uh, anyway, that is a very small window. Yeah, and they that melt dies pretty quick. Yeah, I bet. Dang, it, it makes things tricky too because from a public perspective, um, I know our biologists are wonderful about inviting school groups to come out and public volunteers, etc. But you do have to be really careful because, like you said, it's a um, it's a carefully timed process. So you want to be sure not to get in the way and to um, help the best you can, but not do anything to disturb that process. But um, I would definitely encourage any of our teachers that if you have a local school group that wants to learn more about that um, whole spawning procedure, to get in touch with your local fisheries biologist or get Give us a shout and we'll connect you with Brett and he can talk about the hatchery side. But sure. yeah, sure. Right, we got to talk about the paddles. Obviously. So um, we've talked about the walleye, sawgai side of it, um, but the paddles are used specifically for catfish. Is that correct, Brett? Uh, that's what we're using them for. Yes. The, uh, the system was designed and, and developed by one of the first hatchery managers here mm-hmm. and his name was Seth Way. And he was back in the 30s, 40s. He, he was one of those long, long-term employees. And uh, he developed the system of doing this. It's changed a little bit, but when he first developed it, they were using paddle wheels down in the river, and they were doing it that way. What the paddle wheel is, it's, it's just a simple, just a, a piece of sheet metal. It's very stiff, and as the, the uh, water moves the paddle, it just slowly fans the eggs. When I mentioned uh, taking a putting clay on walleye eggs to break them apart, so they're individual eggs to help oxygenate them. That's what you're doing with the paddle, is to keep the water moving. Because on a channel catfish, they're two, three inches thick. They're in one big mass, and uh, it keeps them oxygenated that way. And anyway, it's it's about a. Being on your temperature, it's about an eight-day process, so they're just constantly being fanned. And what that fanning action does, it simulates what the male does in the wild. Okay, I thought that was the case. So um, in the wild, the male will kind of continuously back and forth with the tail to keep that oxygen moving over those eggs? Yep. Huh. Dep- depending on the species, either the male will oftentimes guard the eggs or a female will. It just depends on what species. And in the channel catfish, it happens to be the male. Once those eggs are laid, he'll chase that the the female away because she'll turn right around and eat them. Ah, no kidding. So he'll chase her away, and uh, then he'll sit there and he'll guard them from other fish, crayfish, uh, 
anything gets near those eggs, you'll you'll attack it. Get out of here, seahorses. There's a new best dad in town. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so with all the different species of fish that you are uh, rearing at the Pratt Hatchery, I'm curious, where do all those fish ultimately end up? We go state statewide with everything we do. Um, as I as I mentioned, I think I mentioned uh, the field biologists. They make their requests. You'll see those guys out there uh, in the spring and the fall, and they're out there netting. And you oftentimes see them out there working on that stuff. What they're doing is they're gathering data so they can calculate on how many fish they need of each species. And that's when they put in their requests from us. We set our quotas, and then. We basically just go to where they want them. Okay. And, and they'll also specify what size they want. Oh, So we yeah. go by that, too. Okay. Now, do all the hatcheries go statewide? Or pretty, pretty much. Okay, okay. So they're not, like, strategically placed in certain areas with more bodies of water? Not really. They, I think they pretty much uh, set up or... They were built where they had the water. Mm, makes sense. So and we, just, we try to divide it up. So we're going to the, so we're not traveling five, six hours. Okay. You know, we divide it up so every hatchery kind of has their own, they can take care of their area. Got it. Okay. That makes more sense. I'm trying to imagine just trucking a bunch of fish across the state. Well, we do that. Well, yeah. And that's a good point. Maybe we get into that. So once these fish are ready to be stocked, what does transport look like? Because I imagine for some, they're thinking a five gallon bucket in the back of a pickup. And that is definitely <laughs> not what you know, we're we've doing. We've done that for a while. <laughs> uh, when, the, when this hatchery, this is the Pratt Hatchery is the oldest state owned hatchery. And what we started out doing or what they, what they started using originally was a rail car. And they'd pull that and there's a spur up here that uh, rail line spur that they'd load into and anymore since about the mid-20s we started using trucks and we have different size boxes trucks and the suspensions and everything have improved we even have uh, gooseneck trailers we use with tanks on them and with the oxygenation systems we run pure oxygen on them and also agitators to uh, keep the water going and we can improve our haul distances and things like that but it's just hitting the road i guess and i know there's quite a bit of um hubba hubba about i don't know if that's a word (laughs) but about the dates of during uh, like the dates that those fish are delivered to specific locations i mean a lot of anglers want to know when they're going to be delivered can you tell us why well that's okay well probably one species that's being stocked that, that most people want to know when you're putting them in is either the channel catfish intermediates or the uh, trout mm. program. And, uh, yeah, those there's some people, they'll line up. They're waiting for that truck to get there. And, oh, yeah, those uh, fish those fish go into that water hungry and ready to bite at whatever they can find in there, right? They are. <laughs> and um, oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll announce those dates on our website. Yeah, okay, good. Good to know. And Brett, what happens if, um, you know, based on the quotas you get from the biologists or that you all establish based on the information you get from biologists, what if there's a surplus? What happens with those fish? Well, oftentimes those surpluses will go for fish traits. Or we will also, when the district biologists, they formulate their requests for fish, they also assign a priority scale to them. 
and we go off that priority. If there's something down there where they're wanting to get a population going and they didn't really have a good request in for it or it was at a zero score, we'll oftentimes go there with them. Okay. Huh, that's interesting to know. I didn't realize there was a priority ranking. Yep. I didn't either. That's fascinating. Hmm. So um, outside of trading fish, trading fry, um, what other collaboration exists between hatcheries, both locally and beyond? I imagine there's a ton of information and research share. Well, our, the fisheries division is broken up into three sections. We have research, we have uh, management, and then we have culture. And uh, as far as between the hatcheries, we have a, we're in contact with each other all the time. And we're trying to split up things so we can shorten our distances, things like that. We have, have to haul them out in or go stalk them. Uh, research, they're constantly running some kind of experiment or, you know, doing some research on as far as how we can improve what we're doing. Uh, I mentioned a meeting that we can go to. It's a warm water fish culture workshop. That's a time when we this year we had 24 states that came to that, and we'll sit around. It's just kind of a, a very open, casual meeting. And we sit there and we'll talk about what it's. It's very, it's not very technical. We sit around. And it's you know what's worked for you guys, what's worked for us, and we exchange information like that. I'm going to back up again a little bit. Talking about transporting fish, and you know that whole trading of fry business. Do we truck fish across state lines? Do we put them in airplanes? How do we get them to other states? How do we do the exchanges? There's several methods depending on the size. We'll send some through FedEx. What? Uh, it's it's a system or or a, a way of doing it. It's very common in the uh, tropical fish market. A pet trade, yeah. Yeah. Do they have special FedEx trucks t- to hold the fish, or do they just go in like bags and some boxes? Well, we use uh, a bag, and it's uh, it has a pre measured amount of water. We know how many pounds of fish or whatever we're putting in it. And uh, when we, and it usually involves a styrofoam cooler. And uh, when we put the fish into the water, into those bags, it's oxygen A. We put pure oxygen over it, and then we seal them up. And they'll last, depending on how much you put in there, 24 to 48 hours. So you have a little bit of time to ship them. Okay. Um, otherwise, we're just pretty much over the road just trucking them. No kidding. And uh, we, there's some states that you have to, Every state has its own requirements. Like going down to Oklahoma, you have to have permits to go across the state line with them. So and we have to observe all that. Hmm. And if you go to Oklahoma, let's say, to do that trade, will you take your truck all the way? I mean, you can't really meet halfway, or do you meet halfway and pump them into another truck? Oftentimes we go all the way. All the way. Wherever, okay. wherever they're at. Last year uh, we had a trade with South Dakota, and it was on the northern border, and one of, the, one of the employees there at the Milford Hatchery, he went up there to that and picked up about 400,000 walleye fingerlings wow. and brought them back in a gooseneck trailer. So huh. it can be time-consuming and kind of some long distances. Yeah. Is that a, a nerve-wracking road trip, knowing that you've got all those passengers on board? <laughs> you, you don't stop very much. Just, you stop long enough for gas and whatever. <laughs> no bathroom breaks. Yeah. We're going straight through. Yeah. <laughs> Condense them. <laughs> I can't imagine how stressful that is on the driver, but do trips like that stress the fish out? Yeah, it can be. Yeah. And you have to monitor them. They, we have oxygen systems, again, 
oxygen systems and aeration back there. Uh, sometimes you have to stop and ice them down. Depends on what time of the year. If it's the heat of summer, you may have to stop and get ice. You just throw a bag of ice in there? Pretty much. Wow. So you ice them down, you keep them cooler. That helps you out on how much oxygen you can hold in the water and all that. Right, right. That's so, so cool. So once you get um, on site, let's say, to a lake where you're going to stock these fish, um, you know, in my very limited experience um, keeping fish, when we would add a new fish to a fish tank, we would always acclimate it and add a little bit of water at a time. Is there any system like that in place for the fish that we're stocking from our transportation trucks, or is it pretty much straight into the water? We used to be strict on the tempering of fish Mm -hmm. but with all the ais uh, issues out there the the zebra mussels the quagga mussels the uh, we don't transfer we we try to limit what we would bring back on the truck or in the tanks so we oftentimes won't swap water because you have to break down everything and disinfect it when you get back and sometimes those trucks are going out every day Right. And there's just not enough time. So oftentimes we don't get down in the water anymore. Hmm. Uh, we try to it get be as close as we can to temperature of what that receiving body of water is. And so oftentimes we have to just shoot them into that. Wow. And for those of you who don't know, ANS is aquatic nuisance species. Or AIS would be aquatic invasive species. Yeah. Okay, kind of yeah. Used interchangeably. Right. Hmm. That's fascinating. Do we have any estimates on the survivorship of stocked fish? We do. I can give you some ideas. Of course, I'm looking at from the culture side. Uh, anytime you, the bigger you put them in, the higher usually your success. Uh, I know from stocking fry, things like that, we put in, and if you look at our what are, is requested, Usually as the fish gets bigger, what they're requesting, their numbers go down dramatically on what they're asking for. Where we may go in and put in three and a half million walleye fry, you get them up to a finger and they may want 200,000. Uh, as far as, I would almost have to refer you to a management biologist because they're out there twice a year looking at their lakes and, and they can tell you if they've had a successful year. It's very hit and miss. It can be. We try to uh, uh, minimize any kind of a issue as far as, uh, you know, timing, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Oftentimes, we'll wait until they have zo- uh, zooplankton in a, in a body of water before we would send those out. We try to improve the chances that that fish don't make it. And have something to feed on, right, yeah. with the yeah. zooplankton. Okay. Um, that's really interesting. And I imagine there's quite the trade-off there between, um, you mentioned that if there's going to be bigger fish, they'll, the biologists will often request less of them. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is because they survive better. But also on your end of the deal, it probably takes a lot more time and resources to rear fish to that it, level and to that size and age class. It does. Um, compared to putting in a larger number of fry. Right. And, and, and it does. It takes it takes a lot more effort on ours. And, and the and likewise, the cost goes up as the bigger you get them. Hmm. So uh, but everything we do out there, when I mentioned we have 87 ponds, they're all divided. Each pond is a certain species, so we don't have to worry about contaminations, things like that, because some bodies of water don't have 
certain species, and we've got to be careful and mindful of that. Right. What about, like, self-predation? Is there a lot of predation um, within the hatchery system? Do you have trouble with that? Yes, we have problems with that. <laughs> I've heard uh, that, is it the walleye can be pretty bad culprits? Yeah, uh, walleye, normally, when we hatch those, they're in a tank for approximately three days. And what you're watching for is the absorption of that yolk sac, and also you'll watch on their head. And you'll see their lower jaw developing. Once that lower jaw starts to develop and it starts opening and closing, they'll start eating each other. Wow. So oftentimes we'll separate them into a fingerling pond or what's going to be a fingerling pond. And uh, you have to fertilize the water to get the fish to grow. So we're fertilizing the water to get zooplankton to hatch off. That's what the walleye will eat. Once those populations of zooplankton crash... They're going to look at each other. Mm-hmm. So, look out. Dun, dun, dun. So, so sometimes you have to just take them when they're ready or when the pond's going down. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I imagine that there's also predation that exists um, because these are outdoor ponds um, as far as birds, turtles, any other critters that are out there in that natural system, right? Mm, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we get a lot of osprey. Yeah. Uh, we've recently had a pair of eagles. I think this is their third year. Over there, and we've already seen them setting up for nesting over there. Uh, of course, then you have all the great blues. And you have the, the cormorants that migrate through and all that. Yeah. So, I've definitely heard um, Derek Schneiderwin over at the Milford Hatchery cursing the birds out there. They'll uh, give him a run for his money sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, we look at the birds sometimes. as That's a pretty good indicator if your fish are sick. Oh. Because oftentimes mm-hmm. where they congregate are where you have a, have a problem. And you may not have known it, but birds sometimes indicate that. Wow, that's kind of a neat so. natural indication system that it's already built in. Yeah. Okay, so you've had quite or a pretty good success rearing fish in the hatchery system itself, right? I'm curious what role might hatcheries play in preserving threatened and imperiled species? And I know there might be some work going on with that already in southeast Kansas, right? The, there's a new facility over at the Farlington Hatchery. It's the KABC. And that's the Kansas Aquatic Biodiversity Center. And uh, anyway, they're they're looking at mussels also. Uh, they're working with a few of the minnows. It's that end of fish culture is up and coming. We're not the only state doing that. There's a lot of other states. A lot of it started with mussels, but uh, there's a lot of different states that already have facilities up and going, and they've been doing it now for quite some time. Nice. Okay. So we're, we're kind of getting into it. Very cool. And I'm curious too, um, are there perceptible differences between hatchery reared and stocked fish uh, versus wild spawned fish? You can sometimes see a fish that is, um, has been grown on concrete. Uh, oftentimes, okay, I'll use the, the trout as an example, uh, the rainbow trout that we have brought in. Oftentimes you'll look at them and they'll have a very blunted fins. And that's just from being ground off on the concrete. When they feed and they're in such a high activity uh, feeding, uh, they're basically sanding them off. And they'll lose, oftentimes they'll, you'll see them and they won't have pectoral fins. Or you may see the dorsal fin, it's ground down to just a nub. And then you'll see the tails rounding off. Huh. And so, so that's an easy one to to tell on channel catfish are similar they their spines they have three main spines on their 
two, one on each pectoral and then one on the dorsal. Those oftentimes will grind down. They won't be as sharp. Um, just basic things like that. Do wild spawned fish have better street smart knowledge than stocked fish? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like a, like probably. <laughs> Pro- probably. Um, uh, I mean, when we take out the channel catfish and stuff, when you go out and you take care of those things and you feed them, you go out to the pond side, you rev the motor of whatever you're in, if it's a Kawasaki mule or a pickup, you rev the motor, you'll see them come. It's just about like a cow pen. What? And they'll come rushing across there to, to eat. Oh, my gosh. So, Yeah. So, okay, they don't have a great sense of self-preservation because they're used to being fed by other means, right? Okay. Huh, so how about, okay, so I'm kind of like likening this conversation to um, hunters who talked about the differences in behavior between pen-raised birds like pheasants and wild pheasants. Um, Are there differences in behavior as far as like how much they fight when an angler hooks into one on a line or anything like that that we have a real metric of or is it all just a bunch of... Hooey. I can picture it, but I don't know if I can really give you much of an answer on it. Yeah. I haven't really looked into it too much. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> but they're usually, if they've come out of a hatchery, oftentimes their body condition is very good. They've had food in front of them the whole time they've been growing. So oftentimes they've got really good body condition. Hmm. So you can look at some of the fish that are out in the wild. If it's been a bad shed year or whatever like that. It usually shows in how their body's contoured. Hmm. And then is the expectation that um, these fish, once they're stocked, they'll basically become ingrained um, with that overall population and go on to reproduce naturally just like all the other fish in the system, right? Oftentimes, yeah. With the exception being trout, which, of course, are um, artificially stocked in Kansas. Right. And and we have restrictions on grass carp. Uh, You cannot possess uh, carp that are diploid. They have to be triploided, which means that they're basically sterile. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to have that for those. Uh, sometimes when you hybridize a fish, they will be sterile, or a percentage of them will be sterile. <coughs> huh. And so for um, populations that are at risk of like getting out of control and taking over, over-foraging an area, that would be um, a beneficial thing to be able to use grass carp to knock down some of that aquatic vegetation while also not allowing the population to explode, right? Right. Ah, nice. Very cool. Okay, so it sounds like hatcheries do a lot for the state of Kansas, and not just the state of Kansas, but for other states as well. Do you have an idea of what um, the fisheries system here in Kansas would look like if we didn't have hatcheries? It would look a lot different. We would not... A lot of the fish that people are out there seeking or trying to catch, they just wouldn't be there. There's just too much pressure on the the lakes and the streams and ponds and things like that. Uh, It would look probably dramatically different. And there's some species that just wouldn't be there at all because they're totally uh, produced in a hatchery. 
And the good news is that um, the funds that our anglers spend on going out and buying a license, um, as well as getting equipment, that money comes back to KDWP through license sales, and then of course through the Dingle Johnson Act and excise taxes placed on those goods and materials. So um, our anglers are basically supporting that system, which they then benefit from, and it becomes cyclical in that nature. Um, And obviously our aquatic spaces support a whole host of people and outdoor recreationists, so that's not to say that there are only um, anglers out on our lakes, rivers streams what have you but um just kind of a cool system there supporting itself i was gonna say that's how we're funded totally is by by basically the dangle johnson Mm -hmm. um all right brett how can the public learn more about the pratt hatchery do you all offer private tours behind the scenes vip with brett whenever we want (laughs) we we can try to uh well there's five of us on staff and to be honest with you, our priority is to do is to take care of the fish. And there's sometimes that are extremely busy. We're always welcoming people that come in. And if if it's slow or something, somebody has a chance to break away or or they don't have much going on. Sure, yeah, we'll give a tour. Uh, we do schools, things like that, or organizations. We had scout groups or church groups. I know the Young Professionals of Pratt came out as well, um, and you gave yeah. the Young Professionals group a look yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes we'd ask, you know, if you're going to bring in a group or something, you want to definitely have somebody to talk to you directly about it, please call ahead. But we do have people that just walk in a family or something like that. And it's usually not a problem if, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll take the time with them if, if at all possible. So those folks who are listening who might be passing through Pratt or already live in the area, do you have a suggested time of year that would be a better time for them to stop by for a visit? The best times, at least for kids, is when they can actually see something. We've got good old Kansas water, which you can't see more than about a foot into. So oftentimes it's when we have something in the fish house. The month of April's good. It's usually pretty cool. You don't need a, you know... You won't sweat to death. Uh, otherwise, uh, you want to see something down the fish house come in in June, and that's when you can see the channel catfish. Very and, cool. And um, the water is, is shallow enough. It's clear enough. You can see everything's going on. And if we have time, we'll pull some out, and you can look at them under a scope and, and identify all the different parts of the fish. And oftentimes, uh, fish are they're in a clear shell, or their eggshell is clear. So you can actually see those fish tumbling, twirling in there, and you'll see their eyes developing and their blood system and all that. Neat. So, Just so neat. Yeah, it's it's a fun time for all ages, so definitely come out. Um, like Brett said, with a school group, with a church group, um, even young professionals groups. I mean, it's really a fascinating, fascinating trip for anybody. So It's been a good career to keep you outdoors. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, speaking of careers, what advice do you have for somebody interested in this career field? If I was going to suggest anything to a person, uh, I would encourage you to probably apply to be a temporary employee. Uh, that oftentimes will help. Take advantage of, if you see somebody out there, you see a biologist out there, you know, take the, take the time to go speak to them. Introduce yourself. That's a good way. I've, from myself, that's how I got some of my references to get started myself. So, um, anyway, I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, as far as the school, most biologists, in fact, all the biologist jobs, you're going to need at least a, a bachelor's of science degree. 
Um, there's some areas, some other states, they're requiring masters. Mm-hmm. Kansas is right now is at a bachelor's. And, you know, one thing I'd like to harp on, too, is I think there's a growing um, emphasis on our biologists, on our culturists, on everybody involved with wildlife and parks in any way to also be good communicators. Because so much of what we need to get better at as an agency is telling the story of what we do and um, helping people understand how the work that we do is relevant to their day-to-day lives. And so, um, you know, what we joked about math, don't slack off in math class. I know you're interested in science, all you students out there, but um, also, you know, keep up with your English. English classes too. Keep up with those communication strategies because I promise it will come in handy. We need um, good biologists and good outdoor communicators as well. That's right. Well, we certainly commend you for the hard work that you're all doing over there. I know I, for one, definitely benefit from it and know several people that I am close with who also benefit from the work that you're doing to stock plenty of fish and keep us sport fishers, uh, sport anglers, uh, awfully happy out there on the waters in the summer months. That's good. <laughs> um, but before we get into our wrap-up questions, Brett, Flatlander listeners, remember to like, share, leave us a review, tell your friends about us, let us know what you want to hear on the podcast, especially Especially if you have an idea for a um, an episode topic or a speaker that you have in mind, we want to hear from you. And if you leave us a review, we will for sure blast your name into the universe via podcast style. So let us hear from you. Okay, folks. All right, Brett, we're going to get into wrap-up questions. You ready for me? You bet. Awesome. When you think about the future of either the Pratt Hatchery specifically or just about aquaculture in general, what are you the most excited about or looking forward to the most? Fish culture is going in some very interesting directions. There's changes being made all the all the time. Uh, Pratt Hatchery, we're kind of old school. We're not up on the cutting edge of technology on a lot of things. It's an old system, but it's a very efficient system. Some uh, hatcheries are getting into RAS systems, which is a recirculating uh, water where... They're raising just a tank, and it's constantly flowing through there. That's getting to be a very big field right now. And a lot of people are, a lot of the states, other states are getting into it. We have uh, RAS systems being built out at the Mead Hatchery and up at the Milford Hatchery. And they do have for the the uh, Biodiversity Center over in Farlington, they have small RAS systems there. So uh, the direction where where fish culture is going. I, wow, I love neat. yeah, I love that the new uh, the new use of technology and techniques to really kind of hone the practices, make it really efficient and uh, more successful. Right? Water can be a uh, water's everything right. for a fish. Uh, the usage of that water that's very important, and it's getting to be more important all the time. Right. And some of these systems they have very little water loss at all. That's pretty incredible, honestly. It just constantly cycles and self-cleans and... Oh, I love that. Sustainable. I love that for I love that for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing a uh, Flatlander field trip in the future to go check out one of those rest systems. In the field. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, so on the other side of that coin of what gets you the most excited, what keeps you up at night? Like, what's got you stressed out? What are you not looking forward to? I mean, what's what's making you lose sleep over hatchery management? Mechanical breakdowns, oh. um, water flow issues. Water stops flowing, they your fish can die. Mechanical issues, you have them so concentrated or compact, 
it just takes a few minutes and they'll be gone. Right. And you, you're basically so, on call during your busy seasons, right? So we, if something happens, you lose power, you have to get over there ASAP, right? We have an alarm system. And yes, it, during the certain times of the year, we always have somebody on call. And that's usually for the weekend at least, if not during the week. And uh, yeah, they're on that dial up with the phone and they got to go and take care of it. And I imagine that the drought period that we've been in kind of within the past year or so has made things additionally stressful. It's, it is an issue. Hmm. Uh, the water flow out here, we, that's one of the things we do monitor is the water flow in that river. We're using, we have a diversion dam that pulls a portion of that water off. But uh, right out here just, just south or east of the hatchery where the water goes past us, there's a uh, an area that uh, kind of a... A dam over there that f- supplies the Pratt County Lake. There's areas where you can noticeably see where the water's gone down. So it's it's it hasn't been good. Oh, that's a scary deal. All right, and last but not least, what challenge would you like to pose to our listeners, Brett? I'd I'd, I'd probably encourage everybody to take somebody fishing. It's it's not depending on what level you want to get into. It's not that expensive, or you can make it very inexpensive <laughs> you know it's all, how how, you, how far you want to take it you don't necessarily have to have the boat and everything but uh it gets you away from the electronics and you get outside and it's a lot of fun definitely it's, it's fun for all ages sure and when you do fishing clinics and derbies and things like that you'll see how the kids and even you know grandpas and grandmas how they react is pretty neat I love that. I love that fishing can be such a multi-generational activity yep. to do and pass on to loved ones and friends as well. Yep. Yeah. Got to create those stories. Right, right. Well, this whole podcast episode makes me want to throw my pole in the back of my vehicle and just have it on hand so I can bebop over to the pond right by the office and go fishing whenever I feel like it. Mm. Definitely. And while you're here checking out uh, the Pratt Hatchery, be sure to pop over. We have um, a couple ponds here on site that can be fished as well. Uh, One of those is a, it's typically a catch and release pond, but we do stock trout in it seasonally as well. Um, So those are usually put in in the November timeframe and kind of die off as we get into the warmer months of spring and summer. But um, we do have a kids pond as well or a youth mentor pond. So you can bring your youth out and there are some pretty sizable channel cats stocked in there, Mm -hmm. Brett. I was going to say, the kids' pond, we oftentimes will rotate out a, a brood class because we're constantly rotating the brood fish out. And we'll oftentimes stick six plus pound fish in there. The other one's, if you look on the website, it's called the Centennial Pond. Mm-hmm. And, that, and there are other species which you can catch all summer long. There's bass and other things in there, but. Uh, it is a catch and release. Yeah, there are readier sunfish in Centennial Pond, which is yep. exciting to see. You don't always encounter that species. Yep. Huh. And insider tip, there are uh, some wonderful school groups that come out and take advantage of that youth mentor pond, and uh, they keep those green sunfish fattened up with bits of hot dogs. So <laughs> They do love those hot dogs. That's what the fish are looking for in the youth mentor <laughs> pond. Oh, uh, man. All right, Brett. Well, it has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. I know things are getting really busy sure. over at the hatchery. Well, it's picking up. Uh, we're, we're starting to water up now, and it takes about a month to get the whole... All 87 ponds full, so 
Is that done on like a spillover system? Like the ones closest to the pipe fill up and then the water fills up in the next one and then right. the next. Okay. It just comes right down the line. I could, I could talk to you all day, Brett. <laughs> I feel like the fact that we cannot close this con- uh, conversation <laughs> is just a testament and a great reminder about the fact that flat is, is a, a state, state of, of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.